Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, worship team. I forgot to mention earlier uh, that Ryan will actually be preaching next weekend on the long weekend. We didn't put him on there because it's the long weekend and less people are around, but um, because we really needed somebody, that's why. So just wanted to be clear about that. Um, so it'll be really great. It's, it's one of the, for, for Ed and I, it's enjoyable to see uh, elders in our church who are willing to, to stretch themselves in that reality of being willing to step up and, and share the word and, and share thoughts. We can find sermons anywhere. You can search whatever topic you want and find a sermon, but the reality is when we gather as a local body, uh, we want to hear from our leaders, the people that we put in positions of leadership and authority in the church um, as servants, and so it's great to have uh, elders like Ben and, and uh, Ryan who will, who will step in and take, and Ron, sorry, uh, who will preach and, and go through things together. So uh, this morning, we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation. I've had a, a, a great week. It's been a busy week, but it's been a great week, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a really great reminder of the reality of the, the best parts of, of pastoring are not necessarily standing on stage and, and doing a message or even the preparation that comes with it, but it's the, it's the opportunity you get to walk in, in people's lives. And um, Again, I want to thank you guys for the way that you've just continued to lift up Jake and Mary in prayer. Um, every time I talk to them, they just say, we just feel the church praying for us. Um, and what a great testament to uh, somebody who's a, a family who's going through such a difficult time, but very much tangibly feels that their church is with them and behind them, and that's fantastic. This weekend, Heather and I got to attend yet another grad um, for uh, Alex Wind, who's one of our youth um, and was a was a missionary uh, kid from Mexico. Um, and uh, we've known Alex since he was just a just a little baby, like. 14 months old, 12 months old, um, and to see his journey uh, and all the things he's went through and conquered um, and to see him graduate was really joyful this weekend to be part of that. So it was a good reminder this week that those are the things that um, bring the most joy uh, as, as pastors that we get to walk with people in life. And so it was really great. Um, like I said, it's great to be able to share this morning. And so we're, we're going to turn our attention to Revelation uh, chapter 3. Uh, and, and I want to take a look at um, one of the seven churches that are listed in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelations. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn to Revelation 3, uh, 7 to 13, and we're going to look at the church of Philadelphia, and we're going to go through this pretty verse by verse, so having a Bible in front of you will be easiest, but uh, I'll settle if, if you want to use your phone or iPad as well. Um, but I want to give a little background before we jump in. So chapters 2 and 3 address the seven churches that John the Apostle, the writer of Revelation, greets in chapter 1. Each church, each, each one of them, each of the seven is unique in their circumstances and their makeup and also in their situation. But we can see some certain characteristics that they all share. So all seven churches follow a distinct and similar pattern. A characteristic of Christ is drawn out from Revelation 1. A word of commendation and praise, if appropriate, for the church. There is also criticism for their sins and corrections uh, and warnings. And there's a challenge and a promise drawn from later chapters of Revelation 19 to 22. So these seven churches were historical churches located in Asia Minor. So that would be modern Turkey today. And you can see them up on the screen. Uh, and at the end of the first century A.D., these churches were in and around Ephesus. So Ephesus would be the major center. It's the biggest city out of all of those. 
Um, these cities were located on a major postal travel route, and, and you see as you look through them in the, the book of Revelation, they're addressed in sort of a counterclockwise way, but there was a very much a, a route that would go to connect all of these cities. And each of their messages, when we read them, has a, has a word of wisdom and application for all churches throughout history uh, and until Jesus comes again. And so there's always reason to revisit and revisit these churches because, and the letters to them because there's things that Jesus would have for us. The Church of Philadelphia is one of the unique churches in the seven because Jesus has no criticism for her. The Church of Smyrna is the only other church out of these seven that can boast that. It's also significant because of the criticism Jesus gives the other five churches is heavy and harsh, though justified. So why does Philadelphia receive no criticism from the Lord? Because the church in Philadelphia is a great commission church, a church that has been faithful to their Savior and his purposes. Great commission churches are those that would take serious Jesus' final marching orders given just before he ascended, most notably in Matthew 28 and in Acts chapter 1. One theologian, Oswald Smith, states that any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. And I think there is much that we can learn and be challenged from in light of this little church in Asia Minor. So let's read Revelation 3, verse 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, has opened, and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Philadelphia was passionate about being a church on mission for Jesus. And in reading the text, Jesus was passionate about enabling it to continue to be a church dedicated to his goals and his mission. This was a church that was faithful to Jesus. And he promises them that I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. That is an incredible promise, as you'll see, that the Lord gives them. This open door. Churches can be great in their witness, even when they appear weak and small. And that was the church in Philadelphia. What matters to God is not what they look like on the outside, But what matters to God is what they were on the inside. What is clear is that when Jesus sees what he likes, there are no limits on what he may do for them 
but also through them. Chuck Swindoll says it well, the size of the congregation, the limitations of its location, or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty, beyond description or comprehension. When he chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow him wherever he leads. And there are certain things that characterize a church like the Church of Philadelphia. A church that Christ opens doors for that no one, not even Satan, can close. It entails how they see Christ, how they value the gospel, and how they trust and live in the promises of God. So to be a great commission church, first we need to see Jesus is awesome. Now, Hear me when I say this. I'm not saying this in a whimsical, like, hey, we need to see Jesus is awesome, man. Not like that. We need to see Jesus is awesome in a reverent way. Incredible, majestic, powerful, awesome. He is awesome. The city of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, was 25 miles southeast of Sardis. It was an important high plateau city on a main highway that connected Smyrna, which was about 100 miles due west. And in AD 17, the city was decimated by an earthquake. Remember this, because this is going to come back later in our text, because it's important. And then it was rebuilt by Tiberius. So as a result, it was very loyal to Rome. And it was called the gateway to the east. It was something of a missionary city for the spreading of Greek culture. In the passage that we just read, Jesus promises the church that it will be a missionary church for the gospel. Though it was set up by Rome to be a missionary church for Greek philosophy, it is Jesus who uses it to be a missionary church for the gospel. We don't know really how this church was founded. We only know that it was a church that pleased Jesus. Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus has no word of criticism or correction for the church. And I think this is due in large part to the exalted view and love that they have for Jesus and his gospel. Look at the description of Jesus in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus is the Holy One. He is the Hohegios, the Holy One. This title was given to God in the Old Testament in Isaiah 40 and Habakkuk chapter 3. Here and in other places in the New Testament, like Mark chapter 1 and Acts 3, it is ascribed to the person of Jesus. The idea is one of purity as well as separateness. God is separate from creation as creator. He is separate from sin as the Savior. Who God is, Jesus is. He is pure undefiled, spotless, without stain or blemish. Hosea 11 verse 9 says, For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. Jesus is the Holy One who walked among us in the flesh and now walks among us by His Spirit. But Jesus is also the true one. He is the whole Elethinos, the true one. Revelation 6.10 combines these two titles, calling Christ the one who is holy and true. Jesus is the true God, distinct from all others. What Jesus says is the truth because it flows from the true one. 
Ideas of trustworthiness, reliability, dependability leap from his title. He is genuine and he is faithful. This would certainly encourage a church that was limited in strength. It is he who will sustain them and see them through the commission that he has given them. Jesus is also the sovereign one. Jesus has the key of David. Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 says that Christ holds the key of David and of Hades. Isaiah chapter 22 says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder, in referring to Jesus. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. And here in our text, the same word appears, and the same words appear and are given to Christ. He is the Davidic Messiah with absolute power and control to entrance to the heavenly kingdom. He alone has the authority to admit and exclude who will come into the presence of the king. He alone has the key that lets people into the kingdom of God. No wonder Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved and he will come in and go out and find pasture. Only one is the sovereign Lord who holds the key to the entrance to heaven and eternal life. Only Jesus. It's this Jesus, the way that he himself describes himself to the church in Philadelphia that they are fascinated with. They see him as the holy one, the true one, the sovereign one, as awesome. And so if we want to be a church that's serious about the mission of Jesus, we need to see Jesus for all he is. Jesus is holy, pure, spotless, without blemish. He is also trustworthy and reliable and dependable, but he is also the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of God. He is savior and king and good judge. And as we look at all of this, we see his awesomeness. Friends, it's important that we see Jesus as awesome and we can only see that Jesus is awesome through his word that is taught to us by his spirit. We can't see Jesus as awesome by just living in our culture. We won't see that. You may see Jesus as a good teacher or a man who said great things or maybe even did great things. Some will recognize that he did miracles. But we will not see his true awesomeness until we see it through the lens of his spirit teaching us the word. So that's why we need to be people of the word, dedicated to what it says. And without seeing Jesus as awesome, the next part that I'm going to see, it won't matter. Because if Jesus is not the object of our, of our affection, if we're not fascinated with him, if he is not awesome to us, where he is everything, the next part won't matter. And the next thing that defines the church here that, is, that Jesus writes to them, it doesn't matter if they don't see him the way that they do. So the second thing is, a great commission church is faithful to the gospel. Philadelphia's view of Jesus is what energizes them for the task of mission. I don't know about you, but the, the mission of Jesus is something that is not easy. It's not something that we can just do on our own. To make disciples, to evangelize, to reach out to the lost, to walk with people who don't know Jesus, it's messy. It takes time. And we can only do that through resting in Jesus and knowing who he is and allowing him to strengthen us and energize us for that task. Henry Martin says it well, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of mission. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionally we become. Unfortunately, this is not a good description of the North American church. 
We are not missional. Which strikes the question, are we close to Jesus? We are more like the church of Ephesus that has abandoned the love that they had at first and just goes through the religious motions of doing things for religious routine. But the Philadelphians were doing good out of the proper motivation of knowing and following Christ, love for Christ and for the gospel. And Jesus commends the church in several areas that we may be wise to emulate. First, he he encourages them in their persistence in the work of the gospel. Jesus says, I know your works. The one who opens, no one will close, and closes, no one opens. He knows their faithful service on his behalf. And of that of the gospel, we again see Jesus have no correction here, which speaks to the faithfulness of this church in ministering the gospel and evangelizing the lost. He doesn't reference their hearts as he does in the church in Ephesus. Apparently, the Philadelphians' hearts were in the right place. They were right with the Lord. They had, their love was in the right spot. They had not abandoned their first love. They were doing the right things for the right reasons. Love for Jesus, not religion or legalism, moved them into action. Jesus wants this church to keep on doing exactly what they were doing, to minister his love and grace to people and to be persistent with this message to the lost. It's important, church, that we don't miss this. I know your works, is what Jesus says. I know what you do, how you live out your faith. I see the way you minister to the people in your city. I see that your faith isn't just religious duty. I see your sacrifice. You're not just a club that only focuses on your own needs, inflating yourself with knowledge that you have no intention to use. I see that you are with the lost and those who need my grace and my love. You minister to the poor. Your heart and passion for the things in your city are my heart and passion. This is what Jesus sees in this church in Philadelphia. The second is that they keep being true to Jesus. The the church, this church, like many churches at this time, had limited strength or little power. This church was not large and it was not wealthy. They carried little, if any, influence in the city of Philadelphia, but they were hardworking and they were faithful. They kept Christ's word and they didn't deny his name. And it seems very real to assume that there were constant trials and persecutions that this church faced, particularly in looking outwards and sharing the gospel. But they kept true to the word and didn't deny Christ's name. They remain faithful to the only name that saves. The opposition that they face did not deter them from the obedience of the great commission of sharing the gospel and being being in people's lives. When is the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? What is the opposition that you might face that is deterring you to do so? Notice that Jesus isn't writing this letter to the elders of the Philadelphia church or to the pastor, but to the entire body. And he is commending them as one in their faithfulness in the gospel, as one body. We must see the great commission as an individual calling and responsibility, just as much as we see it as a corporate one. It is each of our responsibilities. The cultural Christianity that has been subscribed to our North America mindset doesn't hold to that. 
Don't, don't believe that lie. It's all of our responsibility to be equipped with the gospel to be able to share with people. And this church in Philadelphia recognizes it, our passion about it, and lives it out. He also encourages them to continue to be encouraged by the prospect of mission. Jesus makes a promise, a pledge to this faithful little community of believers. It's a promise of an open door that no one can close. And some believe that this open door into the kingdom in heaven is what it means. It's an open door into heaven in their success. Others believe it is about an open door for successful evangelism and mission. And though probably an either-or approach is not necessary, I think the best way in light of the text in studying this is to see it as an open door for evangelism and the gospel to go forth and spread, particularly in light of the words he just said about, I know your good works, in the context of the sentence. And a similar Greek word occurs in 2 Corinthians in reference to an opportunity to go and do ministry. That same word is also used in Acts 14 and 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 4, in the meaning that Christ encourages the church in Philadelphia with opportunities for ministry in the midst of trials. So it seems that it's right for us to look that Christ has opened a door for ministry in Philadelphia, for the gospel to go forth, for evangelism to happen. The interesting part is the church had a literal open door geographically, a gateway to the east. Philadelphia sat at the crossroads of several languages, culture, and people groups. From an evangelistic and missionary perspective, this dynamic little church had great opportunity for ministry. And Jesus continued to open this door for them that no opposition, that nothing could shut. The church in Philadelphia had a passion for the lost. And Christ promised them even more opportunity to be on mission with them. One commentator notes that the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity into the community. I wonder sometimes what my own personal response, but what our church response would be if God was to open a door like this in Tabor for us. Maybe one is already open to us and we don't even see it, but what would we do? Would we care? Would we see it as an opportunity or would it be a burden because lives are messy? Would those who are lost and need Jesus grip our hearts? Jesus also encourages his church in the hope of vindication. Like I said earlier, things weren't easy for the church in Philadelphia. In verse 9, Christ says, Behold, or you could say, Take note, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, meaning hostile or unbelieving Jews, behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There is much that we do not fully know about Christ's return. The exact dates, all the exact details, yet for certain we know that Jesus is faithful and has promised to make all things right and to return. And though the Lord has general love for all, he has a particular love for his children, those that are faithful to him. And Jesus promises this church that he will humble their adversaries, their enemies, those that have opposed them. The opposition that believers can face can often be fierce and hostile. And Jesus promises that those things won't last forever. And this is particularly true in the lives of the early church. They were persecuted for sharing the gospel. 
Early church leaders were put into prison and killed for sharing the gospel, not simply for what they believed. It was just that what they believed was so important, the person of Jesus was so important that they couldn't help but tell people and be in people's lives. And because of this, of their public faith, not their private faith, they were intensely persecuted. But Jesus promises this church that those who have opposed them will bow before them as they come and bow to him. Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 ring true. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether people will bow to Jesus in glad salvation or in bitter submission, all people will come before him as Lord. And Jesus is reminding this church in their faithfulness and in their work of what they are doing, that though there are trials that will come and though they will be hard and there will be opposition and there will be times where they'll want to give up, that they will be vindicated and that all things will be made right in his time. This is important for us to remember as we are faithful to the gospel, that we are not faithful to the gospel just because we live in a free country or because we're able to be in a church where we can preach the gospel. We are faithful to the gospel because Jesus is awesome, because there's a burden in our heart, because we see the lost as the way Jesus sees them. But knowing in the difficulty that we will face, because the world will not love the the word that we have, they will not love the gospel. Jesus promises that, but that there will be vindication, that all things will be made right in Jesus. Because when we want to be faithful to the gospel, when we face opposition, often people want to give up. And Jesus is saying, keep going. See the open door that I've given you. Finally, a great commissioned church lives by the promises of God. In verse 10, Jesus says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is a, this is a much disputed verse as to its proper interpretation, particularly the second half of the verse as it pertains to end time events. Alan Johnson, who's an uh, end times uh, scholar summarizes the two hermeneutical challenges that this verse brings forward. So related to the, that promise, he says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. There are two problems arise. The identification of the hour of the trial and two, the precise sense of the phrase, keep you from the hour of trial. Both involve the ongoing debate amongst evangelical eschatologists over the tribulation and rapture question. And I'll give you a sense of how I understand these verses in light of what Christ is saying to this church in the context of Revelation. When Jesus says that you have kept my word about endurance, he is referring to the teachings about Christ's endurance that have become a model of steadfastness to the Philadelphians. It is in this response to their endurance that he gives a promise of remarkable protection from an hour of testing that will test the whole world and those who live on the earth. In every instance, Revelation 6, chapter 8, 11, 12, where this phrase refers to unbelievers exclusively as the object of God's wrath, judgment. So two things stand out. The hour of testing is focused on unbelievers. And I think this is primarily in reference to the tribulation. 
chapters 6 to 19 of Revelation. Christ promises deliverance, the second thing, or protection to his children, not from trial or persecution in general, but from specific and definitive testing that is aimed at unbelievers. So the question remains is how we best understand their deliverance of being kept from the hour of testing. John MacArthur summarizes the pre-tribulation view well, uh, which I would be sympathetic towards. Because the believers in Philadelphia, he says, had successfully passed so many tests, Jesus promised to spare them from the ultimate test. The sweeping nature of the promise extends far beyond the Philadelphia congregation to encompass all faithful churches throughout history. This verse promises that the church will be delivered from the tribulation, thus supporting a pre-tribulation rapture. The rapture is the subject of three passages of the New Testament. John 14, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Thessalonians 4. None of which speak of judgment, but rather of the church being taken up to heaven. There are three views of the timing of the rapture in relation to tribulation. That it comes at the end of tribulation, which we call post-tribulationalism. In the middle, mid-tribulationalism. And the view that seems to be supported by this text, that the rapture takes place before the tribulation, pre-tribulationalism. Several aspects of this wonderful promise may be noted. First, the test is yet future. Second, the test is for a definite, limited time. Jesus described it as an hour of testing. Third, it is the test or trial that will expose people for what they really are. Fourth, the test is is worldwide in scope, since it will come upon the whole world. And finally, and most significantly, its purpose is to test those who dwell on the earth, a phrase used as a technical term in the book of Revelation from the believers. The hour of testing is Daniel's 70th, 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation period. The Lord promised to keep this church out of the future time of testing that will come on unbelievers. End quote. Regardless of your view on tribulation, it's abundantly clear that what we have here is a marvelous promise of Christ's protection for those who have kept his word and who have remained faithful. For those who have obeyed his word and lived it out. Verse 11 goes on to say, I'm coming soon, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This further demonstrates some of the things I've mentioned about their faithfulness, about them continuing to persevere in their faith. The idea of staying with it and following through on the faithfulness to God. Finally, verses 12 to 13, it speaks of Jesus giving this church a home and a new name. The home, Jesus concludes in this letter with a twofold promise to the victor. First, our Lord will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. To a people continually threatened by earthquakes and the need to flee the city when they come, this world would speak powerfully to their hearts. Historians have noted that often the only things left standing in these severe earthquakes were these huge stone columns in the temple. In Revelation 21, verse 22, it tells us in the New Jerusalem, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. To be a pillar of Christ puts the believer in a position of absolute and complete security. No disruption, disturbance, or disaster will ever separate us from our Savior. What a promise to this church and to those faithful to Christ's mission. 
Second thing, he promises the name. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of the heaven from my God in my own new name. This church in Philadelphia had a good name and a wonderful reputation in heaven already. Jesus promises them that it will get an even better one because they are not ashamed to identify themselves with Jesus in all that he is. And Jesus is not ashamed of them. As we see, he is in other of the churches he talks to in those chapters. Three times Jesus promises them a new name of blessing and honor. They receive the name of God, the one true God. They receive the name of God's city, the new Jerusalem. We discover at the end of the book of Revelation that the new Jerusalem is both a people and a place. And they receive the name of Jesus. These names signify who my God is, our God is, where my home is. And who my Lord is. Finally, Jesus ends with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Anyone. That's you. That's me. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says. The word from God the Son applied by the Spirit of God to the churches. Hear these words. It's interesting, when we talk about commands of Jesus, we often don't talk about these letters. But this is a clear, direct command from Jesus that we should be taking note of what he says to these churches. We should be taking note of what he says to the church of Philadelphia. So often when these letters are referenced, we look at the ones that are doing really bad. And we say, hey, that kind of reflects the North American church. And we need, we need to not be like the, the church in Ephesus or Laodicea or whichever one you want to pick out. Often we don't look at the two that are admirable to Christ and say, hey, how do we be like that? Instead of looking at, hey, how do we stop maybe doing the wrong things? How do we just focus on what is the right thing? And Jesus says, be devoted to my gospel. Know me. Know who I am and what I command and be devoted to my gospel, to my mission. And I think at times in our churches, that is our heart We want to be devoted to Jesus. We want to be devoted to his mission. But we can get so distracted by so many things. Our culture, we can get so inwardly focused in the church that it's just all about us and our preferences and the things that we want. And If I don't get what I want, then I'm going to do this. And we're not really focused on the plethora of lost people all around us. The people who have walked away from faith in our families. The people we rub shoulders with every day who do not know the hope that we have in Christ. And we don't see those people as the the burden of our hearts so we don't equip ourselves in the word regularly. And we don't see ourselves challenged for the gospel to be gospel-sharing people. These are not marks of the North American church. And so we must be reminded out of the word that this is what Jesus calls us to as the church. That we are called to be a church like the Church of Philadelphia. He desires to see his gospel go out, his love embraced by people, his grace be known. As much as it would be wonderful for people who don't know Jesus to see theology and say, oh, I just love the theology of Jesus. It's not usually what they fall in love with first. It's his love and grace demonstrated through his people and his spirit. The theology comes second. So church, to be a great commission church Like the church of Philadelphia, we need to see Jesus as awesome. 
He's got to be number one. Not just in what we say. Can't just be like, oh, Jesus number one. Jesus has to be number one in our lives, in our hearts, in our motivation, in our treasure, in how we do use our time, how we use our money, how we deal with situations in life. It has to be through his lens, his perspective. We can only get that through the word. Jesus is awesome. We need to be faithful to the gospel. His gospel, his mission. Not your mission, his mission, his gospel. And as we are faithful to the gospel, we have to live by his promises. We have to live in in his assurances, in his power, in his hope, knowing that we are sustained by him. It's not about how much we can do. It's about the power at work in us through him. So we need to see Jesus is awesome, be faithful to the gospel, and live by the promises of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word. These letters to the churches, it would be great to spend half a day cross-referencing all of them in the different facets, but we thank you for a faithful church in Philadelphia that can teach us so much. Father, it's easy in our culture to, to lose perspective or lose passion for what is most important. And so help us be people that are equipped, both in our individual lives and in our church, that see Jesus as awesome, that want to pursue Jesus and are in love with your son because of all that he has done for us, for how good he is and faithful he is in our lives. But would we also just have a burden for the gospel, for the people that you love, Jesus, this world breaks your heart. Would it break ours? Would you help us to be sensitive to your Spirit's leading and how we may share the gospel, share our lives, walk beside people? Would we not see this as something that's a groaning thing or a burden, but a passion? Help us to do it healthily. Help us to do it in community. Help us to encourage one another in how to do it not simply point fingers at each other. And in the midst of following out your gospel, help us to cling to your promises, knowing that even in this brokenness and everything that is so wrong, that you will make everything right. And that regardless of whether you return in our time here on earth or or later, that we can trust in the fact that you will make everything good and right. So help us to hold on to that hope that we have, knowing that you are good and faithful to the end and that you are with us as we walk this out. We pray this in your name. Amen.